Good morning, friends. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn in them to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. If you are using a pew Bible, that will be found on page 8 of the pew Bible. And as you're turning to Genesis chapter 12, just as a point of connection, I don't think that Ben planned this, but I did find it providential that he was praying for Josh Babb, who's the senior pastor at First Baptist Centerton. Did you guys catch that in the pastoral prayer? Um, Josh Babb is my best friend from second grade, and um, funny that just last Saturday, me and one of my coworkers from GSI spent Saturday morning meeting with the elders at First Baptist Centerton um, as they are thinking through <clears throat> what sending missionaries well looks like um, and what potential partnership with GSI uh, could look like as well. And then my fellow coworker who lives in Sarasota, Florida, actually stayed over and preached Sunday morning at Josh's church. Um, and then stayed over and taught at the chapel that is affiliated with the, um, with the Christian school that's connected to First Baptist Church Centerton. So it's encouraging um, to hear you guys praying for other churches that are already at work um, to try to see more people sent to the ends of the earth. So that said, uh, if you have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 12, follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 3. From God's word. And this is what we're told. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Friends, would you pray with me? Father, we give you praise that your word does not return void. That it, in fact, accomplishes what you send it out to do. And that in work with the Spirit, it convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. That it is living and active, searching the motives of our heart. And so, Lord, this morning we pray that you would make the soil of our hearts ready to receive your word. Lord, so that it might produce fruit, some 30, 60, and 100 fold. Lord, I pray that you would help me to speak and teach. And as Ben has already prayed, that you would open up our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. That we would see you in a way we have not seen you. That we would hear you in a way that we have not heard you. God, that you would speak through your word. We come to your throne boldly in need of grace and mercy. And we thank you that we can do that because of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Well, friends, this morning, um, as we open up God's Word together, I'd like to begin sort of autobiographically and tell you a little bit about myself, okay, how I got here, what it has to do with you guys, and what we're going to talk about this morning. So growing up, <clears throat> I was raised in a textbook blue-collar family not far from here, just north um, in southwest Missouri, and growing up, 
Um, as a young kid, I remember as a young kid in a textbook blue collar family, my dad's idea of fun was to take me out on the weekends and make me help him cut wood. Um, I heard some of you laugh. I promise you as a young kid, I did not think it was funny. Um, I thought it was a great way to ruin my childhood. Uh, but I remember being probably somewhere between seven and 10 years old, uh, running a Husqvarna chainsaw, um, which is like a lawsuit waiting to happen in today's world. And I remember thinking to myself as a young kid, why on earth are we out here? And there were a number of reasons that my father took me out on the weekends to make me help him cut wood. Um, but I am convinced that the foremost reason was to make me miserable. And it worked because we would go out to cut wood. And I remember that we had not been out there um, for probably more than three to five minutes, which I, you know, as a seven-year-old feels like eternity. And um, I would start complaining to my dad about how miserable it was and how um, I was dead set on the fact that he was ruining my childhood while all my other friends were watching Saturday morning cartoons and playing video games. Here I was left to split wood and drag brush. And so as a young kid, when I would complain, I remember very vividly my dad always sharing sort of this life message with me. And when I would start to complain, my dad would silence my complaining and he would say the following. He would say, Sean, if you never want to cut another stick of wood, and if you never want to drag another piece of brush, then I want you to listen carefully to my words. And this is what he would say. Sean, here's what you need to do. You need to grow up. You need to do well in high school so that you can get good grades and that you can go to college. And I want you to do well in college so that you can get a great degree. And the reason you need a great degree is so that you can get a great paying job. And the reason that you need to get a great paying job is so that you can actually pay someone else to cut your wood. <laughs> And I thought as a seven-year-old, that was maybe the most genius thing that my dad had ever said. Um, you know, as seven-year-olds, we don't think that our parents are very wise, you know, but I thought that that was a very wise thing. And so I took my dad's advice, convinced friends, convinced that my purpose in life was to um, chase this thing that we call the American dream. Raise your hand if you're familiar with what I'm talking about. Three or four of us? Okay. <clears throat> Yeah, I was convinced from my father's advice that my purpose in life, per his advice and admonition, was to chase this thing called the American dream. Now, my father never um, articulated it in quite those terms, but that's what he was urging me and advising me to pursue. And it wasn't just what my father was advising me to pursue. Um, come to find out, friends, it's what everybody seemed to be advising me that I was to pursue. It's what my high school classmates were telling me I was supposed to do. My high school teachers were telling me that I was supposed to do. It seemed to be what society and culture was telling me that I was supposed to do was to chase this thing called the American dream. Now, I don't fault my dad for such advice because I didn't grow up in a Christian family. And so we didn't operate from a Christian worldview. My dad told me what he thought we were supposed to do based upon what everybody else was saying that we were supposed to do. And so I graduated from high school, convinced that that was my purpose in life, and I had the opportunity to head off to college. Convinced when I was headed off to college that I was going to go there to get a great degree, get a great paying job so that I could make a boatload of money. In fact, I um, remember being fairly decent at math and science in high school. And if you're decent at math and science, not always, but often you end up usually pursuing 
one of two degree programs and one of two career options. You either do something in the engineering world or you do something right in the medical world. And so I did a job shadow my senior year of high school with a civil engineer and it was miserable. Okay, if you're an engineer, it's not personal. <clears throat> it just wasn't for me. And so then I ended up going and, and finding my way into doing a job shadow with a local dentist in town. Now raise your hand if you like to go to the dentist. Yeah, none of us. And nothing makes going to the dentist more awkward than having an 18-year-old stand over you um, while somebody has their hands in your mouth. And so here I was watching this dentist work, and I thought to myself as he was working, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to go become a dentist, um, not because I had any interest in that field particularly, other than I thought, hey, I'm good with my hands. I like math and science. I'll make six-figure income. Maybe I'll work three days a week and then I'll just golf the other four. Um, and I don't like to golf. That's the God's honest truth. But I thought that's what I'm going to do. And so I headed off to college. And if I were to sum up my entry into collegiate life, friends, I would have summed it up in three really simple statements. And they went something like this. Me, my agenda, and just a little bit of God if it was convenient for my life as though that's any kind of a biblical Christianity whatsoever. Me, my agenda, and just a little bit of Jesus if it was convenient. As long as the Lord did not interrupt my hopes, dreams, goals, ambitions, desires, wants, as long as he didn't disturb my three-year post-college plan, my five-year post-college plan, my 10-year post-college plan, then I was sort of convinced that it was okay to have him along for the ride. And all of that changed my sophomore year of college when God sent this minister into my path. And friends, I can assure you that I was not looking for this man. Um, he came out of nowhere and felt like I, I got T-boned by this guy. And I remember this guy sitting me down and I remember him sharing with me. He said, Sean, I'm going to tell you some things that you desperately need to hear, but you're probably not going to be too excited to hear. Number one, life is not about you and it is not about your agenda. In fact, you should probably think about getting over yourself. Once again, I didn't laugh, okay? I thought this guy is candid, he's direct, he's straightforward, he's not playing games, he's not wasting my time. And not only did he look me in the face and say, Sean, life's not only about, not about you and not about your agenda, but let me show you with, with, with God's word what God's purpose is, okay? Life's not about you, it's not about your agenda, but let me show you what life is about. Life is about God. And life is about God's purpose, and God's purpose is quite basic, it's quite simple, it's this. God's purpose is to make himself known worldwide among every tongue, every tribe, all nations, all languages, and all ethnicities, and he is doing that through the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. And then he took this book, the Bible, and he opened it up in Genesis chapter 1, and he walked me from Genesis, okay, all the way to the book and through the book, I should say, of Revelation. From Genesis to Revelation, he actually walked me through the maps. Did you know there are maps in the back of your Bible? <clears throat> okay, those are in there for a reason and they help us to understand what's going on contextually. And so here this guy was walking me through page after page, book after book, chapter after chapter of what God's purpose was from God's word, revealing what he was doing in and through his promises to make himself known to all peoples. 
And friends, here we are 20 years later. That happened in 2004. 20 years later, I have tried to come up with a number of different ways to describe what God did in that moment. And the simplest way to say it was this, that by the time this guy got done walking cover to cover in God's word, my agenda was smoldering over here in a little pile of ashes. Because up to that point, I had never seen God's word talked about in that way. I had never heard God talked about in such a big way like that. In fact, I had never heard what we would call missions or God's global purpose talked about in that way. If I can be very honest with you, up to that point in my Christian life, I had very little interest in global missions. I was convinced that global missions was for someone else, somewhere else. That was certainly not for me, okay? I had no interest in missions because I thought that, right, missionaries and missions was for weird people who did not fit in in America. That's why we mail them overseas, right? Some of you can't believe I said such a thing. Some of you maybe thought it, but you're just not willing to say it. And so I thought to myself, that's not for me. But now here I was for the first time exposed to God's word in a way that I'd never seen it before. And what became very evident to me through no work of my own, but entirely through God's grace and through the work of the Spirit, what became very evident to me was that this thing that we call global missions, it really mattered to God. And if it mattered to God, I was coming to terms with the fact that it should matter to me. I was coming to realize in that short appointment that if I waved the banner of Jesus Christ over my life, called myself a Christian, then no matter what my age was, no matter what stage of life I was in, right, no matter what my location on this planet was or what my vocation in life was to put food on the table and pay bills, and to fulfill my responsibilities and duties, no matter what my age or stage, no matter what my vocation or location was, it became very apparent to me from God's word that this mattered to him. And if it mattered to him, then it should matter to who? To me. It should matter to me. It should matter to me. And I had no idea at that point in time where it was going to take me, what it meant for me, but I recognized that this should be important to me and that this should shape every area of my life. It should shape how I spend my time. It should shape what I do with my money. It should shape the way that I interact with my small group, how I gather with God's people on Sunday morning. It should shape the way that I parent, who I marry, and right on down the list. It became clear to me that this thing that we call missions was something far more grand than just writing a check or going on a short-term trip and checking it off of our Christian to-do list. What became clear was that this was going to permeate every area of my life. So this morning, I am thankful to be with you guys and to open up God's Word. And just so you know where we're headed this morning, my purpose is to walk you through all of God's Word this morning. Now, I don't know what time Ben said, but we're hoping to get it done, okay? I'm hoping to get this done in about 35 or 40 minutes. And so we're going to make quick work of this. I want you to see from God's word that this thing that we call missions, it matters to him. And if it matters to him, then it should matter to us as individuals. It should matter to us as families. It should matter to us as local churches. 
And so with that, <clears throat> we're going to walk through God's Word, and I'm going to show you the same thing that this gentleman showed with me. And what we're going to do is we're going to do something probably a little bit different than what you guys typically do on a Sunday morning, where you look right at a text, and Ben exposits the text and unpacks it. We might think of that as being down on the ground in the weeds, but this morning I'm going to bring us sort of off the ground at 30,000 feet, and we're going to walk through the entire scripture this morning, okay? And so with that, the story begins, friends, in Genesis chapter 1, and in Genesis chapter 1, there are two people on the planet, Adam and who? Eve, that's exactly right. It's not a trick question. And God comes to them in Genesis 1.28, and he gives them the very first commandment in Scripture. And this is what we're told that it says that God blessed them and God said to them, Adam and Eve, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, this happens to be the very first commandment that God gives mankind in Scripture. And if you think about it long enough and hard enough, friends, it's also about the only one that we've managed to keep. Okay, you can talk about that this afternoon with your families and exactly what it is that God is commanding mankind to do. Now, all jokes aside, that is, in fact, what God is after. At this point in the story, there is no sin between God and mankind. They are living in a perfect, united relationship with one another. And so why this is important is what God is commanding Adam and Eve to do is literally to grow their family and to grow it big. Adam and Eve, I want you to have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, grow your family, grow it big, spread out, and fill the earth. And here's why. Because as you fill the earth physically with your descendants, Adam and Eve, I want you to teach them and train them what it means to know me and to worship me. That's why I've made you, that's why I've built you, that's why I've created you, is to be an image bearer of me. And so as Adam and Eve fill the earth physically, teaching and training their children and descendants what it means to know and worship God spiritually, what they'll be doing is populating the earth spiritually with a planet full of people who know and worship the Lord. That, friends, is what God is after, is a planet full of people who know him and who worship him. As the waters cover the sea, the Lord says, so my glory covers the earth, right? And so what God wants is a planet full of people who know him and worship him. In fact, the refrain of scripture is, I will be their God and they will be my what? My people. I will be their God and they will be my people. What God wants is a people gathered to himself. However, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says that man sins and they sever their relationship with God. That union is broken. And so by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the Bible says that every intention in mankind's heart was only set on evil all the time. Six chapters into the Bible, utter wickedness fills the earth. God responds to the wickedness of humanity, and in Genesis chapter 7, he floods the earth. He basically hits the reset button, and he starts over with the second family. And in Genesis 9-1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and say it out loud with me, friends. What's it say? Fill the earth. Okay? Fill the earth. Notice we're not even 10 chapters into the entire Bible, and twice already God has commanded mankind to fill the earth. Fill the earth. The difference, however, between Genesis 1 and Genesis 9 is what? Sin. 
The difference between Genesis 1 and Genesis 9, same command, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, but now sin has entered the narrative such that mankind is at rebellion with God. Right? Just like we sang in the hymn this morning, humanity is at rebellion with God. They are at enmity with Him. They are at war with Him. I would remind us this morning, friends, that there are no neutral parties in the world today. What do I mean when I say that? You either love God and you hate sin, or you love sin and you hate God. No human that's ever walked this planet was ever in a neutral position with the Lord. They either love God because He has given them a heart of flesh and taken out their heart of stone, caused them to be born again, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word, or they love their sin and they hate God and they're at war with Him. And this rebellion and this enmity, friends, comes to a climax two chapters later when we come to this story called the Tower of Babel. And here's what we're told 11 chapters in to the Scriptures. It says this, Now the whole earth had one language and a common speech. So 11 chapters into the Bible, no matter where you went on planet earth, everybody was speaking how many languages? One, right? English, surely. And as men moved eastward, it says that they found a plain in a place called Shinar, and notice this, they settled. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower that reaches to the sky. Why? So that we might make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. What had God clearly commanded humanity to do? Fill the earth. Fill the earth. God says go. Humanity says what? No. God says fill the earth and scatter. Humanity says we will what? Settle. God says I made you for my name to be made great. Humanity says we'll make what? Our name great. You don't have to have great Bible interpretation skills to figure out that this is what we call direct disobedience. And if you're following closely along in the biblical narrative, you get to this point, right? The apex of sin, humanity shaking their fist in God's face. And you're thinking to yourself, what is God's response going to be? And why do we ask that question? Because just a few chapters back, what had God done in light of humanity's sin? Flooded the earth and wiped them out. Killing everyone and everything with the exception of Noah and his family and the animals two by two. Demonstrating, right, the severity of sin and the seriousness of God's justice and his judgment. And so you get here and you think to yourself, is, is God just going to send them flying into the sun? Okay, I mean, seriously, it wouldn't be out of line for him to do so, but that's not what happens. What we're told is that in God's justice, he also is merciful. Because God is both just and merciful. And those characteristics within the Godhead are not at odds with one another. And so what we know and what we're told is the Lord said, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the tower. Now before everybody was speaking how many languages? One. And we go from one language to many languages. We go from one location to many locations. In fact, all of the known languages 
friends, come in the world today. The, all the known languages that we're aware of in the world today, they actually come from this event right here in Genesis chapter 11. As Christians who believe the Bible to be God's word, authoritative, we believe if we were asked, where do all the languages come from in the world today? As I see a room full of children, if you've ever wondered, kids, where the languages in the world come from, they come from this event right here where God scattered humanity all over the planet to speak all these different languages. But once again, if you're following closely along with the narrative, when you come to this point in the story, it's a bit puzzling. It seems a bit backwards, if you will, because what I've been arguing from the first few chapters of Genesis up to this point is what does God want? A people what? Gather to himself, right? What God wants is a people gathered to himself who know him, praise him, and worship him. And what has he in fact done right here? He's what? He's scattered them. And so there's this tension in the text at this point in the story where we are, the question is begging, right? What is God going to do to gather a people back to himself from all these people that he has scattered, in fact, I was just reading in Psalm 78 this morning before I came to join us here that it was God who settled them in the land. I think it's Psalm 78, verse 55. God is going to be the one to gather the ones that he has scattered because what he's after is still the same thing. A people gather to himself. And so the question becomes, what is God going to do to begin the gathering process? Now, we don't have to go far to find an answer because I've already had you turn there in your Bibles. Who is God going to use to kickstart the gathering process? Well, just a chapter later, we're told. And what we're told is that the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household. And Abram, I want you to go to the land that I will show you. Friends, notice that God's going to kickstart the gathering process through the life of one man. A man by the name of Abram, and God commands him to leave, to go, to get out. It's a clear-cut command. Abraham, here's what you're to do. You're to leave. Notice God's command for Abram to leave it doesn't matter whether Abram finds this to be convenient or not, whether Abram finds this to be well-timed or not, whether he finds this to be an interruption in what's going on in his life at that time and that place. Why do I argue for all those things? Because the Bible tells us that Abram is 75 years old when God breaks into his life and speaks. Abram at this point in his life is not looking for God, friends. In fact, the scripture is clear in Romans chapter 3 that no one seeks God. No, not what? Not one. And Abram is no different than anyone else. He is not looking for God. In fact, we're told that Abram up to this point, right, had been an idol worshiper like his fathers. We're told from Joshua chapter 24 that Abram and his fathers worshipped idols. And so God breaks in the same God who spoke the universe into existence is the same God who in this point in time is commanding Abram to leave. Now we're going to spend a decent amount of time in Genesis chapter 12. So if you're watching your clock and you're thinking, heavens, it will be three before we get out of here. Okay, fear not. Fear not. Many of the verses that I will share with us after this point are just meant to support 
what we're going to unpack from Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And so what I want us to see is what exactly is it that God is commanding Abram to leave? Well, notice first from the text that God commands him to leave his country or his land. Abram was living in the land at that time, excuse me, living in the land of Ur at that time. Okay, Ur was a port city that sat in the Persian Gulf. It was rich in commerce and trade. And as I've already pointed out, it was soaked in idolatry. So God is commanding Abram for there to be a decisive break away from his land, from his idolatry, from his safety, comfort, security. Not only is he commanding him to leave his land, but notice further that he's commanding him to leave his people and his loved ones. Abram, I want you to leave your land and I want you to leave your loved ones, the people who you have laughed with, done life with, cried with, who you share, right? Who you share the closest relationships with. I want there to be a decisive break away from that. And not only from your land and your loved ones, but also, Abram, from your father and your father's household. Now, just so that we don't miss what's happening here, the reason I pause and slow us down is to say that sometimes, for those of us who have grown up around Christianity for any amount of time, sometimes these stories, if we're not careful, can become like white noise to us. And so what exactly is going on? What exactly is God commanding Abram to leave? If you're Abram living in the ancient Near East, friends, you do not have the options available to us in the 21st century. You are not entertaining, if you're Abram, what career choices you might be interested in or where you'd like to go or what you think will most satisfy you. If you're Abram, what are you going to do when you grow up? You're going to do what who does? You're going to do what your father does. And further, you don't get the consideration to think through, well, maybe I'll go down to Austin, Texas and stay there for a while. And then, you know, maybe I'll head up to Montana. Okay, in a few weeks, I'm headed to Bozeman. It's going to be beautiful. But if you're Abram, you don't get all these options to consider that are readily available to us today. If you're Abram, you're going to do what your daddy does and you're going to live where your daddy lives. And hopefully, hopefully, if you outlive your father, then you stand to receive his what? His inheritance. So just to be clear, what exactly is it that God is commanding Abram to leave? Answer? Everything. He's commanding him to leave everything. Now, I often think that when people address what's happening in Genesis 12, they speak of it in terms of Abram's missionary call. But I would contend that long before Abram, this is ever Abram's call to a place. Genesis 12 is Abram's call to a person. And why would I argue that this is Abram's call to a person before it's his call to a place, that this is Abraham's call to salvation before it's his missionary call, because look what the rest of the verse tells us, right? Go to the land that I will show you. And God does not bother to tell him where he's going or how long he's even staying. Could you ever imagine Ben standing up here and saying, friends, we're excited to announce an upcoming mission trip. We don't know where we're going and we have no clue how long we're even staying. 
Who is interested in such an endeavor? So Abram is not necessarily being called to a place. He doesn't know where he's being called to. But what God's going to go on and promise him is, Abraham, not only am I commanding you to leave your land, Abraham, I'm actually going to promise you land. Abraham, I'm not only commanding you to leave your people because I'm going to give you a people more numerous than the stars in the sky, more numerous than the sand on the seashore. And Abram, I'm not only commanding you to leave your land because I'm going to give you land, leave your people because I'm going to give you a people. I'm commanding you to leave your father because, Abram, I'm going to become your father. And Abram, if you get me, you get what? You get everything. You get everything. To have God, friends, is to have all. In fact, this is why Paul can say to the church in 2 Corinthians, having nothing yet possessing what? Everything. Because Paul knows that if he has God, he has all. And so God is commanding Abram to leave his land, his loved ones, and his father's household to go to a land that God is going to show him. But then notice he's going to go on a promise that he's going to make him into a great nation and bless him, make his name great, be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And Abram, don't miss the yellow part down at the bottom. Through you, all peoples on earth will be blessed. And so God is going to bless Abraham but God's blessing of Abraham is not for him. God is blessing Abraham in order that through him, all peoples might be blessed. Now, depending on what translation of scripture you may read, it might say all peoples, all tribes, all families, all clans. For the most part, all of those words are synonymous. And so God is blessing Abraham to be a blessing. Blessing is coming to him because God intends to move it through him. It is not primarily for him, it's for who? All peoples, all tribes, all tongues, all nations, all languages. That's who the blessing is for, but then we must ask ourselves, what is the blessing? What is the ultimate blessing that God could give Abram? Now, most certainly God is going to bless Abram with temporal blessings because we're told in Genesis chapter 13 that Abram was one of the wealthiest men in the ancient Near East. But it is not mere temporal and physical and material blessings that God has in mind here whenever he says that he's going to bless Abraham. What is the ultimate blessing that God is going to bless Abraham with? And what is the ultimate blessing? I've already argued it's himself, right? God, friends, is preaching the gospel to Abraham right here. Now, you may be looking at me this morning thinking to yourself, where do you gather from Genesis 12 that God is preaching the gospel to Abram? I gather it from Galatians 3.8 in the New Testament where Paul says to the Galatian church that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you, all nations will be blessed. So what's being preached right here is the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? Lest I assume that we're all clear on it, the gospel, friends, is this. The gospel is the good news. Good news about what? It's good news about what God is going to do and what God has done to fix what humanity 
train wrecked, broke, and sabotaged back in Genesis chapter 3 when they sinned. The gospel is the good news that God is going to do what we could not do by sending his son, Jesus Christ, down through Abraham's family bloodline thousands of years from now. And friends, Jesus is going to step onto the scene, fully God and fully man. And that's important that he is both God and man, the God man, as Paul calls him. Why? Because it is necessary that he is God in order to live a perfect life in fulfillment of the law. It is necessary that he is God in order that he might forgive sins. It is necessary that he is fully human in order that he might pay the penalty of the law. So Jesus Christ steps onto the scene, fully God and fully man. And the scripture tells us that when Christ steps onto the scene in the New Testament, that he is going to live the perfect sinless, spotless, blameless, entirely righteous life and fulfillment of the law. And friends, he's going to do it in thought, word, and deed. He's going to live a sinless life in thought, word, and deed. Just think, just think even this morning on your drive to church, how many sinful thoughts you may have had, let alone the sinful things that you may have said as you're scurrying out of the door and chaos has ensued and people are running everywhere. Sinless in his thoughts, sinless in his words, sinless in his deeds. It's almost too much to grasp. And then he's going to march to the cross where he's going to die to pay for the sins of his people in their place as their substitute for their sins. He's going to live the life we could never live. He will die the death that we deserve to die for our sins. And then the scripture says that he is buried in the grave. And three days later, God the Father, through the power of the Spirit, the entire Trinity is involved in the resurrection. God raises Jesus from the dead, proving to the world that he is exactly who he said He was. And then God goes on to promise that whoever, whoever, rich, poor, young, old, tall, short, fat, skinny, American, Chinese, Laotian, Venezuelan, whoever will turn away from their sins and put their faith and trust in who Christ is and what Christ did God says, look to Christ, and upon looking to Him, I will forgive you of your sins, wipe your slate clean, and give you life forever to enjoy me. That's the gospel, friends. And that good news, what God is promising right here in Genesis 12, look up here with me if you would. From this point forward in the rest of Scripture, God is going to be at work to fulfill this promise. And that promise is eventually going to make its way to every tongue, tribe, people, nation, and language. Not probably, not maybe, not hopefully, but what? Will. As sure as the sunrise tomorrow. And so what I would have us to see is this. As I've already said, that God fulfills His purpose through His promise. Get used to hearing me say it, because I'll say it about three dozen more times in the next 15 to 20 minutes as we work our way through the rest of Scripture. From this point forward, God is going to be at work to fulfill His purpose through His promise to bless all peoples. 
In fact, he makes the promise to Isaac, Abram's son, that through him all nations will be blessed. He repeats the promise to Jacob, Isaac's son, and Abram's grandson, that through them all peoples on earth will be blessed. And so watch, what happens is we go from one man, Abram, to one family, Isaac and Jacob, and with this family, God is essentially going to set his purpose in motion to start gathering all peoples of the earth back to himself. Not only do we go from one man to one nation, or one people, excuse me, let me back up. Not only do we go from one man to one family, but we're going to go from one family to one what? To one nation or one people. What's the nation and the people? As been pointed out this morning, God is going to begin to work in and through who? Israel. God is going to bless Israel in order that they would be a blessing. They were to be a light to the nations, a city on a hill, so to speak. God was going to bless them that the nations might know him. Let me say that again. To bless them so they would know him. And so what I want us to see in pretty rapid fire succession is that immediately from this point forward, right, we might sum up the Old Testament in this way. There's a lot of ways that you could sum up the Old Testament, but one of those ways is this. Out of all the nations that, the God, that God scattered at the Tower of Babel, he chose one nation to reach all nations. Now, friends, this might be out of line for how you normally do things on Sunday morning, but I'm going to have you engage with me and we're going to say it together. Out of all the nations, God chose one nation to reach what? All nations, Israel. And so from this point forward, God is going to begin to work in and through them. And as we turn the page from Genesis to Exodus, we see God at work to fulfill his purpose through his promise, right? In the 10 plagues. Israel was promised land, they were promised people, but by the end of Genesis, they are not living in the land, and there is not a people, in fact, there's only about 70 of them. Maybe a little more than what's in this room this morning, but God begins to multiply them into an exceedingly great number while they're living in the land of Egypt, that multiply them into an exceedingly great number, right? They literally began to grow like rabbits, okay? And God begins to multiply them numerously and... God says, all right, Israel, I've now started to multiply you while they're living in the land of Egypt. The new Pharaoh in charge realizes I've got an entire labor force on my hands. And so he begins to act shrewdly towards them, oppress them, abuse them, take advantage of them. And the Israelites cry out to God and say, Lord, we can't take it anymore. We know that this goes on for four centuries. God hears their prayer and says, I remember the promise that I made to who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What's my point? That the entire Exodus account is grounded, look up here, on this promise. And so from this point forward, God essentially drops 10 plagues on Egypt, sends Moses to deliver them, and out come the Israelites. And why did it happen this way? Why 10 plagues? Why 400 years? Here's why. We're told in Exodus 9, 16, that it was for this purpose, God says, that I raised you up, Pharaoh. It was to show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed where, friends, in what? All the earth. When God delivers the Israelites out from under Pharaoh, it was not only for Israel, it was so that he might make himself known to Israelites and Egyptians. How do we know? Because a half a dozen times God says, I'm doing what I'm doing so that the Egyptians will know that I am God. And not just the Egyptians, but the whole what? The whole earth, because God is at work, friends, to fulfill his purpose through his promise. And not only do we see it in Exodus 9, but in, we eventually know that the Israelites roll out into the desert complaining 
They're judged to take 40 years worth of laps in the desert. And while they're out taking laps, Moses goes up to the mountain to get the law. And we see God at work, not only to fulfill his purpose through his promise and the 10 plagues, but we see it in the giving of the 10 commandments. For in Deuteronomy 4, 6, Moses says to the Israelites, Israel, observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and your understanding to who, friends? The nations. Israel's obedience to God, friends, was meant to be a reflection of God. Let me say that again. Israel's obedience to God was meant to be a reflection of God. And so in the 10 plagues, in the 10 commandments, God is at work to fulfill his purpose through his promise in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. If we had time, we could look at the crossing of the Red Sea, the River Jordan. Eventually, we know that the Israelites take possession of the land. The kingdom is set up. And the first king out of the gates is King Saul. And on Saul's way to the throne, there's a young man on his coattails by the name of David. And on David's way to the throne, he has an infamous battle with Goliath. Raise your hand if you're familiar with the story. Yes, many of us are. Why? Why did God allow David to slaughter Goliath? It was so that all the earth... So that all the earth, so that all the earth might know that there was a God in Israel. Now you could preach a whole sermon on each one of these passages, but my point is to simply demonstrate to us that behind all of them, God is at work to fulfill his purpose through his promise. When David slaughters Goliath, friends, there are global implications involved in what's happening. The story is far bigger than David. It's far bigger than Goliath. In fact, I would argue that the whole point of the story is not primarily about David and Goliath, but about who? About God revealing himself to the Philistines that were there that day. And not only the Philistines, but the Egyptians and the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites. Eventually, we know that David takes a seat on the throne and he has many sons. And one of his sons is named Solomon. And on Solomon's way to the throne... He asked God for wisdom and God says, Solomon, I've heard your request for wisdom and understanding to lead the people of Israel. He grants the request and not only gives him wisdom, but he gives him wealth. But why did God give him wisdom and wealth? Was it only for Solomon to lead Israel? Was it simply for Solomon to pad his pockets? No, we're told in 1 Kings 4.34 that people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. How do we know this is true? Because the Queen of Sheba is going to travel over 1,500 miles north from modern-day North Africa, maybe somewhere in Yemen or Ethiopia. We're not entirely sure. And she's going to travel over 1,500 miles. That's a long camel ride, friends. She's going to travel north to see Solomon, listen to him speak. And by the time this pagan queen from the nations is leaving Solomon's presence, what is she confessing? Blessed be the God of who? Of Israel. And so in the 10 plagues, the 10 commandments, the Red Sea, the River Jordan, David and Goliath, Solomon's wisdom. Friends, if I had time, we would look at many, many more examples from the Old Testament to prove and demonstrate this point. Ruth, the Moabite, Rahab, the Canaanite, Naaman, the Syrian, Jonah and the Ninevites, Nehemiah and the building of the wall in Nehemiah 6.15, where in 52 days, God pulls off a miracle construction project. Why? so that the nations might know who he was. 
We could see the same thing take place in the Psalms. We read from Psalm 67, but I'll give us another one. Psalm 46.10 says, be still. And do you guys know the rest of it? It says what? Know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. And we know that this is what it says. And unfortunately, friends, this is what it often gets pictured as. But if you go read Psalm 46, it doesn't look anything like this. The mountains are shaking. The earth is melting like wax. But we put this on pictures. We hang it in our foyers. We print it on our T-shirts. We put it on our coffee mugs. And oftentimes, like this picture, what we fail to do is to demonstrate that God is commanding us to sit still and know that he's God. And here's why. Because he says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. By my count, by my count, God mentions his purpose among the nations more than 90 times in the Psalms. For good or for bad. And what do I mean for good or for bad? That God isn't blessing the nations or that the nations are under God's judgment. That's almost once every Psalm on average In fact, why was God blessing Israel has been read from Psalm 67 and explained so that Israel would be a what? A blessing to the nations. And so many more examples could be given from the Old Testament. But my point is to show us that God is at work in all of them to fulfill his purpose through his promise to gather a people to himself from all peoples, Israelites, Egyptians, Canaanites, Moabites, Philistines. And as you turn the page from the Old Testament to the new, look, As Jesus steps onto the scene and begins his public ministry around the age of 30, if you were to read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what we refer to as the Gospels, you'll notice that a significant portion of Jesus' public ministry was not only with Jewish people, but with who? With Gentiles. The Roman centurion in Matthew 8. The Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. The Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. The feeding of the 4,000. Different than the feeding of the 5,000. Now, don't miss this. Jesus came to his own, but his own received him not, as John chapter 1 tells us. And so, Matthew chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, Jesus launches his ministry in Galilee of the Gentiles. And for three years, he takes the disciples with him to show them what the fulfillment of Genesis 12, 1 through 3 literally looks like in his life and ministry, not just his death and resurrection. Why? Because upon his ascension, post-resurrection, when Christ hands a baton to the disciples and he ascends and the Spirit descends, they are going to be engaged in the same work and in the same effort. In fact, before he ascends, he gives the disciples and the church what we call the Great Commission. Is that it? Sorry, I didn't realize I was quite on that slide, friends. And in Matthew 28... We see the Great Commission not only in that text, but many others in Mark 16, 15, Luke 24, 47, John 20, 21, Acts 1, 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and where? The ends of the earth. The gospel had come to them, has come to us because it's on its way somewhere else. It's on its way to a neighbor away, a family member away, and ultimately it's on its way to the ends of the earth. Now, what that's going to take and what that's going to involve is what I'll be talking about this afternoon over a fellowship lunch. 
How does that happen? How do we do that as individuals? How do we do that as families? How do we do that as a local church? How do we do that as many local churches locking arms together? My point from the text this morning is to just demonstrate to you that this thing that we refer to as missions, it's not one verse in Matthew 28. It's the whole what? It's the whole Bible. God is at work to fulfill his purpose through his promise to bless all peoples. In many ways, what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is saying in the Great Commission passage is a simple reiteration of the promise made back in Genesis 12. And all of that, all of that brings us to the end of the story where in Revelation 7, 9, John, one of Jesus' apostles, gets a vision of what heaven is going to one day look like. And friends, catch this. This is what he says. After this, I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. John gets a vision of what heaven is going to one day look like. And he says, there were so many people that I couldn't what? That I couldn't put a number on them. And when we read those words, there's one image that should be coming to mind. Too many to count. So many that it was like the stars in what? The sky? And Abraham pick up a handful of sea of sand from the sea and try to count it. John gets a vision of what heaven is going to one day look like, and there's too many people to count. But what he does notice is that they're from where? They're from every nation, every tribe, all peoples, and all languages, and they are standing around the throne, and they are worshiping the Lamb. Look up here. Promise made. Promise what? Kept. What was God's purpose in Genesis 1? To have a planet full of people who were gathered to him. I will be their God and they will be my what? My people. God's plan and purpose is to have a people for himself. But where will they be from? They will be from all peoples. And in the new heavens and in the new earth, God will get exactly what he's after. Which leads all of us in the room this morning to ask a very simple question. How would God have me to respond to that truth? Friends, revelation always demands a response. Let me say that again. Revelation always demands a response. And so we need to be asking prayerfully as families, as a church body, Lord, if this is your plan and your purpose, how would you have us at Emmanuel Baptist to participate in that? Whether it's to partner financially, whether it's to send, whether it's to consider the necessity of training, there's a whole host of ways. And so I would invite you this afternoon to join us for fellowship lunch as I share a little bit about who GSI is and what that might look like more practically.